Hello, everyone. No bait and switch. None of my little schemes. We are here for the third episode in my Hurricane Katrina series, and this will be the final episode. This will likely end up my longest episode ever released because I need to get through the rest of the story, whatever that takes. I have some complimentary sound clips in here, and I was not wise enough to write four episodes, so we have three. Also, I am experimenting. Excellent. Welcome. So I don't know if you care about the episode length at all, or if all that matters is the subject matter and keeping you interested. So in the spirit of keeping you interested, I will be performing this entire episode in a Klingon opera voice. Just kidding. Today's episode will be delivered normally, and we will continue discussing the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and the impact of the storm and the politician's response to this natural disaster affecting a Black American community. We ended the last episode with a focus on the cruel indifference of politicians to the plight of people in New Orleans. I weaved in anecdotes about George W. Bush enjoying cake, Condoleezza Rice shopping at Ferragamo on Fifth Avenue, Donald Rumsfeld attending a baseball game, and gun rights icon Dick Cheney blissfully fly fishing in Wyoming. I don't like to repeat every last thing I said in previous episodes, but I'd like to begin with a quote from Michael Eric Dyson's book, Come Hell or High Water, to get us in the mood for what we are going to talk about today. While the folk of the Gulf states suffered, the president played guitar with country singer Mark Willis in San Diego. It was a gesture that, however unintentional, underscored Bush's cheerful indifference to their cruel misfortune. As he returned to his ranch in Crawford for the last night of his shortened vacation, the image of Bush partying while his people plunged to watery graves couldn't be erased by his sacrifice of two more nights of pointless pleasure. So, we understand that there's slow mobilization, but there is still some kind of disaster response happening in New Orleans. I also mentioned in the previous episode that civilians had stepped up to the plate to assist with rescues, bringing their boats out and pulling people off of rooftops. Their effort was compared in one of the books I read to Dunkirk, if you did not know about the historical event Dunkirk, which I did not until the Chris Nolan film. I found the Chris Nolan film quite good. The limited available National Guard attempted to sandbag the breach in the levees. You may remember the 17th Street Canal breach from the previous episode. But this proved ineffective. By the time over 40,000 National Guard arrived in New Orleans, Nagin made his rounds on local radio, criticizing the slow federal response and explaining that the National Guard had arrived too late. A part of the delay in disaster response was revealed after the storm. Many facts in general came to light after the storm, but some of those important facts that maybe we may have wanted to discuss as a society were drowned out by a lot of media sensationalism. 
Michael Chertoff, the then head of Homeland Security, had been appointed the person essentially in charge of FEMA in 2003 as FEMA was absorbed by Homeland Security. That meant that Michael Chertoff was in charge of directing FEMA resources and designating them to the different areas in the Gulf Coast, basically coordinating FEMA resources. It wasn't until 36 hours after the storm that Michael Chertoff designated Michael Brown, the FEMA director, the principal federal official in charge of disaster relief from the Gulf Coast hurricane. And this was a part of the reason for the delays. In short, layers of bureaucracy that probably should have been avoided in this type of disaster slowed down the response. Both the authors who wrote entire books about Hurricane Katrina's impact hinted at this very issue if they didn't come out and say it directly. Paperwork slowed down response time in many areas, and whether or not you think paperwork should always be avoided, or you can make exceptions, or no, we always need to go by the book, the fact of the matter was this slowed down the response. And this issue of bureaucracy and how the government organizes disaster relief, I think is one of the greater political issues to dig into and discuss, but it is beyond the scope of this episode, so consider it something to think about. Something to drink about, maybe. So remember, the hurricane hits on Monday, and efficient federal response wasn't really organized until Wednesday or Thursday. Michael Brown, the FEMA director, was in New Orleans on Wednesday and discussed imposing martial law on Louisiana and the rest of the areas affected on the Gulf Coast, which would have included Mississippi and some areas of Alabama, from my understanding. Maybe parts of Florida, but they didn't really get hit that badly, so I don't think so. So I want you to pay attention to some of the themes here when we're talking about disaster relief, and to look at what form of disaster relief most people in power are talking about. In part two... I mentioned George Bush's cabinet meeting, the one that Dick Cheney notably did not attend. Okay, so details about this meeting. President Bush was in Crawford, Texas, during the Wednesday teleconference, and later in the day, guided Air Force One to swoop over New Orleans so he could have a bird's eye view of the devastation. In his book, Michael Eric Dyson critiqued these actions as being unbecoming of a president and felt that George W. Bush ought to have been on the ground. Ray Nagin also criticized George W. Bush's actions on public radio. I personally think this one is up for some measure of debate because I do not know what is typical for presidents. And I also think here... Maybe it's better to contextualize it too and say, maybe it wouldn't have been so bad, but in the context of everything else, I can understand why people were basically mad. And that's what I understand. FEMA had barely enough resources to handle all the people at the Superdome and stranded throughout the city because some people heard about what was happening at the Superdome and whether or not the rumors, whatever they heard on the street was true. Some people were like, I'll take my chances out here. Y'all good at the Superdome because this sounds problematic. We discussed the limited food supply earlier 
and that might have been in part two, and that the situation escalated as more people arrived at the Superdome. Again, there were tens of thousands of people who had all been told to go to this one stadium that was completely unprepared. There was no organization, guidance. It was a melee. Under the guidance of the city's leadership, they believed that the Superdome would be genuinely safe, at least the people who went there. But unfortunately, this was not the case, and we will dig into those reasons today. Believe me. FEMA and the National Guard suffered days-long delays in the arrival of the resources required to remove debris at the scale they needed. This is a Category 5 hurricane. I strongly recommend, in your free time, if you cannot fathom and comprehend this, don't look at Katrina reports, look at other Category 5 storms so you understand that this type of devastation is part and parcel with the Category 5. Government officials spoke in press conference after press conference about the National Guard and martial law while there were still people stuck on rooftops and New Orleans was still filled with water and it was far too much water to be navigable. While politicians held press conferences to cover their behinds from their horrific delays and disaster relief, FEMA and the National Guard worked to patch the levee breaches with very little success. As patching the levees failed to work, Governor Blanco called for a complete evacuation of the city. The situation at the Superdome worsened as Blanco struggled to find bus drivers willing to brave New Orleans after what they heard on the news. And many of those people cited what they heard on the news as the reason they would not go down there. Sorry, I, I will, exp- you know, you will find out why I'm emphasizing this part because it sounds like I'm mad at you and you ended me nothing. You're just listening to the podcast. So let me carry on and continue. Many people would offer their vehicles, like the bus drivers would say, okay, here's the keys, Godspeed, good luck. Uh, They did not want to drive into this. And overall, many people who left this area were not willing to go back in. They were scared. And for good reason, the city was covered in water. That in itself is pretty scary. So adding on all the media stuff, and they were like, hell to the no. Naturally, there were some brave people, shout out to those people, each and every one of them, who put their lives on the line to help, but this was a lot to ask for the average person, to be real, and coordinating this sort of assistance made evacuating the city extremely difficult, because if someone agrees in advance to do something, then I feel like no matter what situation they come across, they would think, oh yeah, but I already agreed to take my bus into New Orleans, so I'm going. But this kind of haphazard, hey, do you want to drive somewhere super dangerous in your bus to be a hero? I mean, this may not be appealing to the average person. I I gotta keep it real with y'all. But whether or not the government officials wanted to admit it, this effort had to be coordinated, organized, and eventually it would come to pass. Buses of people would leave New Orleans, tens of thousands evacuated to the from the Superdome, my apologies, to the Astrodome in Houston. I put my thinking cap on, Sherlock Holmes, and I went to Google Maps. And this is roughly a six-hour drive, mostly along the east-west highway I-10 that travels through Baton Rouge all the way down to Houston. While the drive normally takes only six hours, this investigation, PBS reports 
For some evacuating after the storm, the drive would end up taking around 24 hours. The situation in the Superdome would soon come to an end with this evacuation, but the Superdome and New Orleans have become one of the most recognized failures of the federal government from the natural disaster. And we've skirted a lot around this issue. It's like, I'm playing whack-a-mole, but I'm deciding which mole to whack first. So let's remain in this, in the part of the timeline. We're in the timeline now. And we're going to go into the storm aftermath part of the timeline and discuss the role of the NOPD, New Orleans Police Department, in case you were unaware, the National Guard, FEMA, and how rescues went down and what happened in terms of the martial law situation. And then we'll get to the Superdome because it is really important to understand what happened there for our talk on the media and their role in this hour talk. I am just blabbing to myself in a microphone. Okay, so this is our section on NOPD, National Guard, FEMA, and vigilantism. We are going to start with the New Orleans Police Department. The New Orleans Police Department immediately acted the fool once the storm ended. There is no better way to put it, I am sorry to say. Black folks from New Orleans, especially the Lower Ninth Ward, were often the victims of racial profiling in stores and businesses, and they were subject to instances of police brutality at times throughout the city. As you know, it is somewhat common for us to hear about unfortunate incidents of police brutality in the media, and people in New Orleans lived this reality, as many Black Americans do. This was the situation long before the storm. And the storm itself traumatized both officers and civilians, leading to horrific situations. After the storm, in late September of the same year, the police chief, endorsed heartily by Mayor Ray Nagin, resigned. Journalists speculate that one reason for his resignation may be the fact that he repeated several times unsubstantiated claims about crimes happening in the hurricane aftermath, and they also implied that these unsubstantiated claims were outright lies. However, in journo speak, I think they call it unsubstantiated claims to avoid getting sued, which I should probably try to do. So I'm not saying he did this, but I think they're trying to say he did it. So make of that what you will. At the time, urban legend ran wild and the media ran wilder with claims that were largely completely unverified. And I... I, I do actually think that many of the claims were unverified, and I'll get to why as we go along. Like, it'll become clear. While I have no doubt of the chaos, do not get me wrong, Americans frothed at the mouth for CNN or Fox or whomsoever to spoon-feed them an urban legend about the wild and unruly savages of the Lower Ninth Ward. Let's keep it real. That is what people turn on their TV to see the melee for. Stories about rapes, babies with slit throats, and other horrific events made the rounds. And after the storm, many of these stories were disproven or urban legend, or there had never been any real effort to report this. It was just kind of like people had been saying it and it ended up in the news. But where are the sources? We can't find these mystical sources. 
It makes you wonder, though, why Americans were so quick to believe these stories without question, and what role journalists played in constructing the public narrative around Hurricane Katrina. I think of it this way. If there was, you know, a massive disaster, I mean, there have been massive disasters in in Manhattan, and there have been massive disasters in other areas where a lot of white people live. But if someone told you in Wellesley, Massachusetts, there had been a snowstorm, and you know, the, the professor started slitting kids' throats, I think people would have been more doubtful. But because they said it about New Orleans, people were like, yeah, makes sense. That tracks. And I feel like that was, I feel like that was racism, guys. I don't know. You're willing to debate yourself because I will not be debating. You may be willing to grapple with that. But unfortunately, uh, I will not be debating. And also, unfortunately, this propagation of crazy stories of uber violence in the streets of New Orleans negatively impacted the people of New Orleans, which is why I'm bringing it up because this hurt a black community, y'all. Like, this is not okay. Firstly, the police were already on edge, as were the civilians. Then you have the stories running amok. And then, let's add some icing on the cake, you have trigger-happy officers foaming with implicit biases and anxious after days of stress on a harrowing job that I don't even know why they was doing it. Okay, the spreading unsubstantiated tales of what the people were doing in New Orleans, you know, what every hurricane survivor thinks to go and do apparently, worsened these relationships. I feel like it created even more strains that were already there between the NOPD and the people of New Orleans. There were several complaints about the NOPD, so substantiated claims, and the excess of violence they heaped upon the survivors of this traumatic event. Let us also remember that those people, because I know y'all gonna come and y'all gonna be like, oh, well, the people was raggedy, they was ratchet. Okay, let us also remember that those people, many of whom who have recently experienced trauma of going through such a terrible storm, may have been a little bit disturbed as a human being, remember, human being, would be. They may have had emotional disturbances and behave less rationally than they might have if, like, they had their home, they knew where their family were. Like, they were really stressed out. So I personally do not believe that violence and weapons, which is what the police who are not counselors could bring to the table, I don't think this violence and weapons would have been an effective solution to managing these, like, stressed out people compared to mental health services or genuine assistance because they were in some type of mess at the Superdome or improved living conditions in general because many of these evacuees had lost anything, everything since the storm. And my bottom line here is not to say, you know, because I know people want me to say one thing or they want me to say the other thing, but the bottom line is the police were not intended for this job. I think we can all agree on that. They had zero preparedness and many officers themselves, you know, and you can decide to care or not, suffered from trauma on the job. Before resigning, the police chief mentioned his own trauma of losing two officers to suicide who could not cope with what they had witnessed in the aftermath of the storm. And I realized earlier, I just said, well, he was lying before, but he was not lying about this. There were actually officers who committed suicide, unfortunately, after what they experienced there was a lot of trauma. And I mean, shouldn't they have had counselors too if you're going to throw them into the mix like that? But along with the false accounts of horrible crimes in New Orleans, some recounted, hmm, 
these were more substantiated claims, witnessing officers participating in looting or other violent crimes and covering for each other by obscuring badge numbers, kind of hiding who they were, but using their uniform to basically get into situations where maybe someone would have tried to stop them, but you're not going to try to stop an armed officer. Many of the officers took measures to protect fellow officers from the future consequences of this poor conduct. And so I think at the end of the day, when all hell broke loose in New Orleans, the police were absolutely ineffective in terms of disaster relief. And I'm going to play you a little clip here, which hopefully hammers that point home. Well, this has been a long-running legal saga in, in Louisiana. Um, these prosecutors were initially prosecuted by the state of Louisiana, and uh, the cases did not end in, in convictions. So the federal government stepped in, much like uh, the Rodney King case several years ago in California. State acquittals followed by federal prosecution, and here we now know uh, they were... Uh, convicted. This was a really tragic, difficult situation where um, a lot, where in the chaotic aftermath of Katrina, there was a confrontation on this bridge and uh, people were killed. And now uh, the officers stand convicted in federal court. Yeah, these shootings, they left two people dead, four others wounded on that Danziger Bridge uh, after the 2005 storm. The National Guard were unfortunately not faring too much better than the police department, although there seemed to have been not really as many instances of people complaining about the actions of the National Guard. So I don't want to say they were as unethical, but there was a limit to their effectiveness is what I mean. Thousands of troops from neighboring states arrived to assist with the disaster response, and eventually 70,000 troops were mobilized to New Orleans and the areas affected on the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina. But many of those troops were not deployed until several days after the storm. And in some cases, it sounded like it was up to the states. So either Louisiana could request or the states could volunteer, which is like, seems like a massive waste of time to me. But that was what happened. The trickle of troops actually missed some of the key moments to take action in disaster relief, and that sort of made uh, what they could do limited in certain respects. The issue, too, of National Guard deployment was not the troops' fault, but kind of the fault, the same bureaucratic mess we discussed before. I will keep it real. I do have a very tenuous grasp of what the entire National Guard does in totality. I can infer certain things. And I understand that they sit at the airport in Syracuse and they take down my personal info. And sometimes they go abroad, which confuses me because the nation's here. Anyway, sometimes they're a part of federal disaster response. And that is a fact. Several media outlets reported that the National Guard were given shoot-to-kill orders in New Orleans in the aftermath of the storm. In an interview with one of the members of the Arkansas National Guard, who had been deployed to New Orleans, one troop insisted that the shoot-to-kill order had been unsubstantiated, but this made the people of New Orleans fearful of, you know, his platoon. I don't know what you call it, guys. I'm sorry. I'm not a military girly. Fearful of his group of soldiers once they arrived. 
To be fair to the members of the National Guard, most of the individuals who reported their stories from the National Guard and went and looked for clips, they seemed to be genuine human beings. They care for others. They really wanted to kind of do this function of rescuing the hero of they really stepped up to the plate, I gotta say. They cared for others, and the mobilized National Guard did appear to me to want to help as much as possible. And National Guardsmen from several states arrived in New Orleans. I want you to hear in their own words uh, a couple Louisiana National Guardsmen talking about their experiences, and you can find the link to this in the podcast description. The hurricane, everything passed over. It wasn't that bad till the levees broke. When the levees broke, we saw it taking on water pretty fast. I was living up, uh, we was posted upstairs and uh, over police headquarters on the second floor. And so some of the soldiers came in and said we was taking a water in the gym. So I didn't have when to deal while we was taking water that fast after the hurricane had passed over. And then after it covered the gym and we looked at the, uh, at the steps, it started coming up to the first, to the first step. And at that time we saw uh, making marks on the wall, and the wall and the marks that we was making on the wall started going on the water so fast. Then we started timing the marks, and uh, that's when we realized we were really having a serious problem. Then, so we was in about within about roughly about I say about an hour. Or so we was in about maybe about 22 feet of water. So we had to be evacuated by large boats, and we came out to uh, they brought us to this building where I am right here. And so, uh, as you can see, some of the marks on the wall here. Where, the boat, where those boats docked at. So when we got out of the boat to come into this building, we was in about, and we was in water about waist deep here to get into this building. So that's where we've been housed at ever since that time. You know, considering that we're still alive, we have a lot to be thankful for. But other than that, that's the, that's the place we, we call home and we, still, we, we, we intend to rebuild it back to our home again. Probably, it was about two hours later, when the winds got down to about 50, 60 miles an hour, we made a uh, conscious effort here in the jock that it was uh, safe enough for us uh, to get out into the local public and start looking for looking for people to rescue. And, uh, you know, we went and freed up the rest of the boats. We turned everybody loose. The smaller boats didn't get out yet. We had a lot of uh, 14, 16-foot flat boats. Uh, we, we probably held on to those for another hour until the winds got down below 40. But you know, we pulled out right on the St. Claude there, and I can tell you, we didn't have to go very far to find people there. You know, it was amazing how many people were up on their balconies and on top of the rooftops. Uh, I had General Vaughn running one of the boats right next to me, and as soon as we pulled out to that first complex up here on the right, uh, there were people standing up on the balcony. So where did this rumor of a shoot-to-kill order come from? Well, one reason for the confusion and the alleged misreporting, aside from journalistic carelessness, maybe, right, if you want to assume it's one thing, might have been these statements from Governor Kathleen Blanco. I'm quoting from an archived September 2nd, 2005 CNN article here. A fed-up Louisiana governor, Kathleen Blanco, warned the lawbreakers that extra troops have already arrived in the city and others are on the way, and they're locked and loaded. She said Thursday night that 300 soldiers from the Arkansas National Guard had arrived fresh back from Iraq. There are some, these are some of the 40,000 extra troops that I have demanded, Blanco said. 
They have M16s and they're locked and loaded. I have one message for these hoodlums. These troops know how to shoot and kill, and they are more than willing to do so if necessary, and I expect they will. Y'all, this is a nice white lady Democrat. Okay, so while the National Guardsmen may not have received this message, and most of the people on their on the ground put their lives on the line to help and save the people of New Orleans, I'm not coming for your uncle, brother, father who helped people in New Orleans. But statements like this in a press conference by a governor sent a completely different message from that helpful do-gooder soldier guy thing. And I think all of America received Governor Kathleen Blanca's message loud and clear. And we got to stop playing those games. We, we need to stop playing these games because I think we all know a dog whistle when we hear one. And we can't ever come and say it's a dog whistle because that is what a dog whistle is. This is where the second, quote, conspiracy theory I promised to talk about came from. The conspiracy theory was that the National Guard came and they were hunting people. And people believe the National Guard had been sent to hunt Black people down in the streets. And many people believed that and believe that to this day. If I see more evidence that this was the case or hear more accounts, I would be willing to open this up for discussion. But at the time, I think that there were a lot of things going on. I also will be talking about today the incidents of white vigilantism. And I feel like that white vigilantism with this messaging turned into nights of terror for many people of New Orleans who felt they might be next. This was essentially fully traumatizing this Black community after what had happened. Because you don't know what the National Guard's orders are. So it's all well and good for the National Guard troop to say, I never heard hide nor hair of this. I'm from Arkansas. However, the people who heard on the news, oh, they got M16s, they're fresh from Iraq, they're hoodlums, shoot to kill, that must have freaked people the hell out. It would have freaked me out. We can see here that the main agenda for the federal officials in mounting this response had more in common with turning New Orleans into a battle zone than helping people suffering from the aftermath of an enormously traumatic event that had taken away their livelihoods. Even the, quote, nice white lady Southern Democrat, Kathleen Blanco, couldn't avoid using racially coded language and essentially threatening the people of New Orleans with violence. Now, I always know, I think about what I'm going to say, and I think about what the people, the naysayers, are going to say. And I'm not going to act like nobody in New Orleans was committing crimes, okay? Okay, yes, people do crime. What do you want me to say about that? Naturally, there will be people who take advantage of horrible situations for their own ends. And people who intend to commit crimes prey on vulnerable. They look for opportunities. And there was no one more vulnerable than the people of New Orleans at this point. So rather than focusing on ensuring that the people of New Orleans were not, you know, sleeping in an open field with a shoddy roof, that's the Superdome, and that they were not vulnerable and reducing crime that way, money poured into a militaristic solution, keywords money poured, And that treated, that solution, treated every New Orleanian as a, quote, insurgent rather than human beings. And like, I mean, people aren't insurgents or human beings. They're all human beings. But 
uh, that's for another day, another time, another discussion. It's not for now. Was it because these people were black and poor? This has been hotly debated, but whether or not it was because they were black, well, they were black though. A good proportion of them, point blank period. I personally cannot imagine anyone okaying this in Wellesley, Massachusetts or in Boston, but we have such a high burden of proof required when we or I make claims like this, so I do challenge you to find one example of this happening in a wealthy white part of any American city. I am happy to wait for you to show up with the evidence that you won't find because it did not happen. Another note on crime, because we're all thinking about either crime or punishment. We will have to discuss, and I don't want to, but we do have to discuss looting and the criminalization of people acquiring resources after losing literally everything they owned. I don't know about y'all, but if I saw someone running off with a TV from Walmart after a storm, I would assume they plan to sell it or somehow use it to acquire further resources for survival in the future. That is what money is used for. So you get a nice thing worth many money, you can sell it and get food for your family. So don't assume, I wouldn't assume, I would also probably mind my business. Anyways, you can drum up a lot more sympathy typically for people who are stealing baby formula. But I do want to point out that unless you are in a survival situation yourself, you do not know what people were doing to survive. Some people too, having lost everything, may just have been looking for something to hold on to, literally, just something material to tie them to reality and this world of theirs that had been turned upside down. In the case of the FEMA trailers, they were, they were made quickly and distributed quickly because there were obviously pressing needs for them. And, um, and, and there was that issue that they came out onto the market, out, out into use so quickly. I think it's pretty sad that they're using these trailers that have been proven over the years to not be healthy to live in. They're just, uh, it's a complete disregard for, for the health of people that are here to work. I mean, they need places to stay. So, I mean, if they could do it with trailers, that's fine, but they should be doing it with a trailer that's safe for everybody. It, it, um, formaldehyde is an off-gassing product of, uh, I think, the particle board and um, probably some of the other uh, uh, synthetic parts of the trailer, whether it's the carpet or the uh, paneling, any kind of synthetic, synthetically derived paneling. The people that's got sick, in the, in the past years that we've used them for Rita. The clip you just heard was, in my opinion, an apt summary of what the hell was going on with FEMA. Okay? Every day on the news, FEMA, FEMA, FEMA. I'm a kid, so they probably said more than that, but that was what I was hearing. You have incompetence, and then you have environmental racism, which again, highly reminiscent of my episode on Monsanto versus Aniston, Alabama, very underrated. Highly recommend you check it out for further context. Environmental racism is not talked about enough. After the storm, FEMA provided trailers for some displaced people to live in, trailers that became permanent homes for New Orleanians when their neighborhoods were not rebuilt. 
These trailers were found to contain high levels of environmental toxins, including formaldehyde, and several Louisiana residents, both black and white, spoke out against FEMA's negligence years after the storm. So this issue with the trailers only came to light years after the entire event, and that's not the main subject we're talking about today with FEMA. And But I do want to point out kind of where this is going, and it's not going well. But what we all want to know is what happened with FEMA in New Orleans. There were issues getting supplies to people, issues getting what was needed to evacuate people from the Superdome. And the people on the ground were overwhelmed with the fact that resources were either not materializing or not materializing fast enough. Michael Brown, head of FEMA, admitted on national television to journalist Soledad O'Brien in an interview the Friday after the storm that he hadn't heard about the people suffering at the Superdome or the convention center until that Thursday, several hours after the news made it to CNN and other popular corporate news outlets, and after evacuations to the Houston Astrodome began that Thursday morning. Michael Chertoff, head of Homeland Security, as well as FEMA Director Michael Brown, both denied knowledge of the suffering and hunger in both the Superdome and Convention Center, which, by the way, had been mobilized for spillover from the Superdome. On one hand, it seemed like the people in charge of coordinating a major federal response had failed to maintain an accurate idea of what was happening on the ground. But it also seemed like Chertoff and Brown were both denying the devastation that had been clear for the entire American public to witness on television. As with the National Guard, the people and volunteers on the ground working with FEMA appear to have been trying their best. But with sorely lacking leadership and poor coordination, evacuating people from New Orleans and carrying out search and rescue teams appeared to be happening slowly, especially considering the main reason this was an issue in the first place, which was the fact that, and I have this bolded people, either these people should have been assisted in evacuation prior to the storm, or the facilities for disaster relief should have been better than a football stadium, a place clearly not meant to become a semi-permanent residence for tens of thousands. It really tells you something, unfortunately, about where our priorities as a society lie. I am disturbed. I am disturbed, people. In evacuating the Superdome, many refused to leave, and the situation grew more tense with unsubstantiated claims that New Orleanians had been shooting at National Guard Blackhawk helicopters flying over the stadium to help coordinate the effort. You may have noticed a theme throughout this episode of the false criminal reports, which I will return to when I discuss the media and my takes will be spicy. FEMA tried to cover how poorly they looked on the national and international stage by acting like they had everything under control. But the reality was many of the people did not wish to leave the Superdome, like the New Orleanians. They did not want to leave New Orleans in the first place, right? And I think a lot of their reasoning was, if they send us out of here on buses, we will never be able to come home again. Anyone who may have thought that way would have had a good chance of being correct, because while New Orleans has been, quote, rebuilt, 
Many of those neighborhoods were never rebuilt, and the housing provided in the aftermath for, quote, disaster relief was of extremely poor quality, steeped in formaldehyde and other chemicals, and dangerous to the health of New Orleanians, told this was to be their new housing. looking at the first incredible video from inside the New Orleans Superdome since the evacuation. We were the first camera crew allowed inside. Shafts of light from gaping holes in the roof illuminate the scene. Remnants of hell for up to 35,000 people. To get here involved an incredible journey through the abandoned city where the only traffic is army trucks. We waded through flood water that has become a toxic soup. As we come out of the floodwaters, we kind of hit this ramp where, as you can see, there are personal belongings all along. This is where people camped out for days, waiting to be rescued. It's not pretty. Mountains of people's belongings left behind when they were rescued litter the landscape. I met Lieutenant Colonel Scott Elliott of the Texas Air National Guard, who told me the real heroes at the Superdome were the evacuees. The real action is the people. Um, what they put up with and, you know, the, the loss of their homes, um, People lost family members. As we enter the Superdome's dark, forbidding it's corridors, it's easy to see how families were separated, how there were reportedly rapes and sheer anarchy. The field itself looks like a battlefield, a sharp contrast with the palatial stadium which staged so many spectacular sports events over the years. The evacuees at the Superdome faced some of the roughest experiences throughout the storm, with tens of thousands of people Coming into the Superdome, journalists rushed to describe the anarchy they witnessed unfolding. Yet, framed through their lens, were never meant to question why the anarchy arose. Language planted throughout the interview, the clip, my apologies, guides our thoughts to this assumption. And this was true for many other clips as well. And, and this is the assumption. Anarchy arose at the Superdome because the people there were Black, poor, and you could have expected nothing better from them. You may notice in the clip how the National Guardsman effectively saying what I just said is cut off rapidly, so the journalist can continue stringing along the narrative of Black savagery while having less than 10 seconds of plausible deniability to say that this is not in fact what was happening. More on this in the media section of the podcast today. We're talking about the Superdome now, right? So with tens of thousands of people at the Superdome and federal agencies as well as the city utterly unprepared, the situation turned messy quickly. The people who entered the Superdome had lost everything, and in lots of cases, they had lost their family members as well. After the storm, white journalists rushed to earn their war zone stripes and eagerly foamed at the mouth to create the spectacle of the mess at the Superdome. Even to this day, the situation at the Superdome occupies this mythical space of anarchy, chaos, and savagery in the public imagination. Mayor Nagan went on Oprah to make claims that were later proven entirely false when he claimed that, quote, hundreds of gang members roamed the Superdome. Effectively, he implied that the place was a giant crime scene waiting to happen. In the wake of Katrina, most of the people committing violent crimes after New Orleans were not in fact black evacuees at the Superdome, so the evacuees themselves. 
However, the lack of coordination and the arrangement of the Superdome did open civilians up to violence from other people who had in fact come to the Superdome. Effectively, everyone slept kind of in open space on these cots on the field and brought whatever belongings they could, which accounted for much of the mess. Probably a lot of them decided to leave their things behind when they realized that they were getting on a bus and that created the mess in the clip. The method, if you can call it that, for handling people arriving at the Superdome appeared to involve letting them come in and do whatever they wanted, creating this false every-man-for-himself situation amongst a group of tens of thousands of traumatized people. So they had to take their own spots for their family. There was a lot of chaos, and no one knew what was going on. With limited food resources and no clear messaging from government officials about what would happen next, there were several disagreements between the evacuees and the officials stationed at the Superdome looking on this chaos. The media worsened these tensions with the way they framed their reports, but overall, there was a high level of distrust and frustration at the Superdome, which was not inherently violent just because the people frustrated were Black and they might have been quarreling a little bit. People had been told that the Superdome would be a safe place. And even with the absence of large scale, you know, not even if not everyone was a criminal, the already tense really and that they already had and that they already had tense relationships with law enforcement. They also had this feeling that they'd been abandoned. Ultimately, the lack of resources produced a righteous anger, which officials and media basically brushed off by saying, eh, there are angry black people, probably criminals, super messy anyways. Oh my God, but isn't it tragic, tragic though? Super tragic. So for anyone with a basic understanding of human nature, I feel like the nature of the Superdome evacuation in general would have led to disagreements, which it did. And some of these disagreements... They took a turn, okay, but there were neither marauding gangs or mass murders or mass rapes, babies' throats weren't getting slit in general at the Superdome. This was not happening. Unfortunately, women and children at the Superdome reported a greater incidence in rape and assault, which was basically verified. Unfortunately, this greater incidence of violence against women after tragic events is not a spe- is not a symptom of a specifically African American problem, but a larger societal problem exacerbated by a completely mismanaged disaster relief system that then spun a story to portray the majority of evacuees at the Superdome who had not committed cr- any crimes as potential criminals, which is a weird way of saying normal people. There was this anti-Black stigma that spread even on the good liberal news outlets. Sure, they performed their horse and pony show of mock outrage, but then they turned their cameras on Black trauma and hurriedly enriched themselves off the spectacle by attempting to get the gnarliest footage and receiving the most shocking reports of violence they could, whether or not there was any substantiation behind said reports. The truth about the Superdome is that while there were instances of violence, the people evacuated there were victims, not future criminals. And framing the Superdome through the lens of crime and criminal justice from the outset serves as a perfect example of how the media directs public conversation without giving the impression that this is exactly what they're doing. 
So now, instead of talking about how people were forced to plant their flag and sleep on cots in the middle of a field with no guidance, organization, privacy, or safety, the media preloaded an excuse for the government uh, government officials into the minds of the American public by pounding into the minds of the American public, those same minds, an inextricable link between Black people's existence and a high incidence of violence. While the media presenting appropriately sad and ameliorating lily-white faces, appeared to want to help the victims of Katrina, their portrayal of the Superdome and the exaggerations of crime ultimately slowed disaster response by making many people afraid to take steps or encouraging people to take the wrong steps, and this worsened the situation, leaving officials to chase after appearing to have a, quote, handle on crime rather than feeding the traumatized and stressed people. So thanks. Thanks for that, guys. The Superdome suffered from several more issues than crime, which is kind of why I'm like, oh my god, we gotta talk about this, like... Limited power was one problem. The roof was completely shredded, not exactly shielding people from the elements. For five days, there was sweltering Louisiana heat, crowds of thousands, and no sense of what would be done to make the situation anything other than hellish. There was a lack of food, improper sanitation, and nothing about this was systematized in an effective way, leading people to sort out personal conflicts on their own and to have more personal conflicts that they would not have had to have in the first place if they were not sleeping all on top of each other. The lack of safety in sleeping arrangements created vulnerabilities amongst the elderly women, children, disabled, and the poor. It's not uncommon after natural disasters, unfortunately, for people to take the opportunity to coerce young and poor women into performing sexual acts for resources, and this form of rape occurred at the Superdome, amongst other crimes that the women of New Orleans should not have been exposed to. Many women there lived in fear, and the women who suffered at the hands of rapists had an additional trauma foisted upon them and little chance for genuine recourse or justice other than more men with guns showing up after five days in this environment, eating FEMA food scraps, sweltering in the heat, living in constant terror, government officials began evacuating people to Texas. It's unclear how this was communicated, but it was likely done in a confusing manner based on how everything else was done. The evacuees that had valid questions that for were for a large part ignored entirely. The evacuation of the Superdome greatly upset many of the people there who felt like being bused to another city was not a solution to the pro- to their problem of their fat, flattened neighborhoods. It was a solution to the government's problem. They wanted to find their family members and wanted a clear idea of when they could return. Yes, the city was underwater. That's true. But many would have preferred to find their family members, neighbors, and whatnot. Now, granted, some were happy to leave. That's true. And for many, the trauma of returning to New Orleans would be too great. So they never looked back. However, the opinions were not monolithic, and that's part of one of the ethos, so to speak, I have with this podcast. There is not a single way all the Black people in New Orleans felt it's not possible. Some people lost their children, and several families were separated during the evacuation of the Superdome, again, due to the confusion. There were 5,000 missing children's reports in the storm's aftermath, and many of the evacuees at the Superdome were amongst those who placed missing children's reports. There was simply too much chaos. 
at the Superdome, period. And officials were not willing to work with the people of New Orleans. They were antagonistic. There was a lot of antagonism in certain dynamics and situations. Not everything, but it did happen. All the reports of chaos and interpersonal disagreements sound like, honestly, the cases that I read about or the situations described in the news, it sounded like the traumatized people were getting riled up and public officials were getting mad at them like they had no right, possibly because, you know, to try to show some compassion here, the people who are, let's say you're a National Guardsman, the people are yelling at you about the evacuation, but you're just the guy who's supposed to get them on the bus. You don't know what's going on either. And so, again, poor coordination. Overall, the lack of coordination, 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 (laughs) I keep saying that word, and the separation of families in departure from the Superdome got far less attention in the long term from the media than the idea of gangs and violent criminal enterprises waiting, who were just waiting for the storm to pop off to get their hundreds of gangsters together. So in on this note, we're talking about the Superdome, we're going to the Astrodome, And I must publish here in this podcast my first correction, dramatic music, from the previous episode, where I mentioned Laura Bush's comments about the evacuees. I made a mistake, and after the evacuees arrived at the Astrodome, this is what Barbara Bush, who is the mother, you see, I said that in the last episode, I knew something was amiss. So Barbara Bush, so George Bush's mother, this is what she had to say about their newfound now I'm not sure which is his mother again and which is his wife, but Barbara Bush, I researched this, double checked this. Barbara, this is what Barbara Bush had to say about the newfound stadium housing, which was obviously entirely inadequate for human life. <clears throat> Barbara Bush voice. What I'm hearing, which is sort of scary, is they all want to stay in Texas. And so many of the people in the Astrodome here, she said the arena, but I'm putting in Astrodome so you know, you know, we're underprivileged anyway. So this is working very well for them. This pains me, y'all, but we do have to get into it. Looting, refugees. I'm going to get through it quickly because it's like, oh, this looting stuff. We really, we always have to be talking about looting. One of the main media focuses that I have largely avoided talking about is looting. The concept of looting as a whole kind of annoys me. I'm going to be honest. This is where I'm going to get really, really, you'll find out something about me. I grew up in a small third world country and I fully understand why stealing is wrong, especially stealing from your neighbor. Okay, I really get it. I would not go and steal my neighbor's goat, chickens, house, man, anything. But taking items from a storm-ravaged store does not register for me. Why y'all left it in the store? You knew the storm was coming. Even if people robbed the grocery store, was somebody else going to buy the turkey they stole? It is not registering for me. Okay, so they weren't stealing food. Okay, because I got all your arguments. I know what you're going to say. They stole a radio. Oh my God. And was CEO Bob the Builder going to come clean up the Walmart and save the radio? No, it wasn't going to happen because the city was underwater. So this is a non-issue. Corporate media outlets enjoy titillating their white viewers with depictions of criminal black people. And it's like, this is not, this is just imaginary people. 
a popular meme passed around years later, and it reminded people of the different language used to describe black and white people taking items from retail establishments after the storm. The same news outlet, because we, we got a control for the variables, folks, referred to the white people as acquiring resources, almost like they were wise and intelligent for coming up with the idea, but the same outlet referred to black people as looters. Word of looters spread throughout America and created a nightmare for the black people of New Orleans, unleashing the true criminals who never got the time of day on CNN or MSNBC. And child, we know Fox News didn't discuss this, so don't even ask me to name them all. So the real criminals. It's my dramatic title, but... Reports fixated on crime and the criminal enterprises of black evacuees mobilized white supremacist terror groups, fondly referred to as vigilantes like they're Batman and not Klansmen. Anyways, these were armed white people who were either protecting what they felt were, quote, their neighborhoods, or they were just open season. Seriously, this was very scary to look into. And I actually saw people bragging about being a part of this, not killing someone, but quote, protecting their neighborhood on YouTube. And why internet? Delete internet. Just delete this whole podcast. Don't delete the podcast. We're staying here to listen to the rest of the story. Donnell Harrington. Oh boy. I don't, I'm trying to say this in an American accent and I don't know if it's coming out okay. Donnell Donnell Harrington, an African-American resident of New Orleans, became the victim of white vigilantism in a horrible incident that nearly cost him his life. This story was really hard, honestly, to even consider. Harrington and his relatives had been walking peacefully along when sudden gunfire erupted. Before they were walking down the street, it sounds like in broad daylight. Before he realized what happened, Harrington had been shot with buckshot embedded in his neck and having witnessed his 17 and 18-year-old cousins getting sprayed with the same buckshot, the shooters made their motivations clear. One yelled, get him, get that nigga. This attack occurred at Algiers Point, one of the historically wealthier and whiter neighborhoods in New Orleans. This represents one example of anti-Black violence later picked up by the media long after the general public had been distracted into focusing on its latest headline story. I believe the article I read was from 2009. However, throughout my reading and research, I found several accounts of white vigilantism, including several YouTube videos created by vigilantes themselves or admirers, proudly proclaiming in their video titles themselves as protectors of their neighborhoods. I am not insane, so I did not watch these videos. Or maybe I am insane and still didn't watch them. We don't know. Some Black people in New Orleans felt that by the media portraying Black people as criminals and hammering home the story that every hurricane survivor was a potential criminal, this empowered the white vigilantes to hunt and kill Black people with impunity throughout the streets of New Orleans. And many people believe that there were several unreported deaths, unaccounted for murders, and situations that never got fully resolved surrounding the white vigilantes. And I hate to be You know, I hate to say something and not be able to substantiate it, but this I could easily believe, but I do not have any evidence, like beyond what I told you and what I researched, this is not what I'm an expert in, quite frankly. Black people were not safe in their city after the storm. 
we can agree on that, hopefully. But this fact took the backseat to the media beating us over the head with false flag discussions about looting that bear far less relevance than the increased incidence of white people committing hate crimes against hurricane survivors. And on that note, were they hurricane survivors or were they refugees? Refugees. We got to talk about refugees too. And I tried to do my Scooby-Doo mystery voice because yet another thing I don't really want to talk about because there were certain things that I just wanted to ignore and pretend it wasn't part of the story so I could focus on providing empathy to the Black people of New Orleans. But I know that you're coming to this from your perspective. So I'm hoping to reach my microphone to your ears and really tell you something that will make you think make you consider, give you some historical perspective on what happened. Douglas Brinkley justified the use of the word refugees in his book, The Great Deluge, by effectively saying that this accurately described the people in New Orleans. In the case of the term refugees, we do have a complicated job parsing the meaning and implications of the specific word. My perspective is different from a 2005-2006 perspective. There are several ongoing refugee crises around the world that, since I've become an adult, have been more and more prevalent in the media. So perhaps to me, what, what the word connotes differs from what it connoted in 2005. But there have always been refugees, and I am not at least you know, in my lifetime, I'm not sure whether I agree with Douglas Brinkley entirely. While I do believe he's coming from a good place with journalistic integrity, I think his analysis decontextualized the way the word refugee was used alongside other words with something we call negative salience in the field of neuroscience. And this was done to put emotional distance between the average American viewer and the Black people on their screen. This is how I understand the word refugee to have been used in context with everything else. I understand where he's coming from, but I view it differently, to be quite honest. Using the word refugee promoted the idea that there was nothing that could be done to help Because let's be real, Americans, we talk, we think, we feel sad, but most of us are not doing a a thing to really help the situation of refugees around the world because we have that emotional distance between them, between us and them. And I do think that this was done to boost the negative salience of news stories and to keep people hooked to the news because there was a greater emotional intensity in discussing this. And I don't necessarily know if that helped because I show, or if that was done to help because I showed you all the ways in which the media honestly didn't help. And I think we'll get into it a little more soon. However, there are several reasons where, where most of the time talking here, I've attempted to avoid using the word refugee. And that's for this reason I just discussed, as well as several others beyond the scope of this already lengthy podcast. And I wrote that there were hardly any good jokes in it, but I did not anticipate ad-libbing. So if you would like me to talk more on the subject of refugees and the media and specifically the people in New Orleans as refugees, I will share where you can find me online toward the end of this episode. And now something that I know will kind of 
be familiar to all of you. But in even many ways more profoundly devastating is the lasting damage to the survivors' will to rebuild and remain in the area. The destruction of the spirit of the people of southern Louisiana and Mississippi may end up being the most tragic loss of all. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Please call. I think this is my most annoying section, but also tea. Like I'm saying tea to my own self here. Kanye West later apologized to George Bush for his remarks, which you just heard, an utterly unsurprising move for a celebrity with very little allegiance to the working class people he occasionally comes out swinging for. Prior to his marriage and children, the same Kanye West we know today, fondly dubbed the real Kanye by his superfans, made these iconic comments I played to you and got cut off from television as the camera panned to a very confused-looking Chris Tucker. Kanye West was lambasted in the press as a racist, but as we can see, in the long term, his marriage to Kim Kardashian had more to do with his downfall in public opinion than his alleged anti-white racism. At the time, many felt that Kanye West would affect some material change for them, and he did donate tons of his personal funds and he to the disaster. Or he at least claimed to do so on TV. I did not look into it, and quite frankly, I'm uninterested. Throughout my research, however, I have yet to connect his actions to any long-term changes in New Orleans that made, that made it to the present day. I do think he did something that was important in a sense, but this interview subject has given him quite a bit of attention over the years, and I think it's... Uh, I think we, I'm ready f to move on. I included this bit in the episode, not only due to my emotional weariness from researching this and the desire to just say, okay, we're going to take a deep breath and just talk about Kanye West for a second. I do also not particularly like celebrity or celebrity culture, perfectly exemplified by the political flip-flopping of celebrities like Kanye West and the bizarre obsession that many popular Black, like, intellectual analysts, whatever you, political analysts, writers, media figures have with those people. I don't really feel that. I don't experience those emotions, I'm sorry to say. In his book, Michael Eric Dyson discusses not only Kanye's comments, but references Nas as well. He also had a very long part on Christianity and the Storm, which I skipped. If you are a Baptist or into those things, I do recommend it. L no offense to him, lovely book, brilliant guy, charming writer, lots of respect for the professor, don't get me wrong. However, I am going to use his discussions on black celebrities to get on my soapbox and subject you to non-consensual preaching, much like what I received at the end of Come Hell or High Water, except I am not a Baptist. Rather than ladle more attention onto celebrities and their fly-by-night activism, I would like to highlight some heroes of Katrina who may not stand out because they don't encourage both our individualistic and nationalistic mythos that when Black people, quote, make it, this inherently has a significant impact on the material conditions of the larger Black community. To offset this comment, and of course, like no offense to Kanye West, I don't know the man personally, and I truly wish him the best. But here are my heroes of Katrina, none of whom are Kanye West. The elderly, disabled, and abandoned who faced the fear of death while water rose around them and received no accolades in the press for how difficult that must have truly been. 
For those who, my heroes are those who believed in the importance of their roots in the Black Creole city and risked their life and limb to save the land where they grew up. The first responders, National Guardsmen, volunteers, and anybody who provided that genuine, personal, human compassion and assistance to the people of New Orleans. The NOLA boys and the other civilian rescuers I read about who pulled civilians off rooftops when the government failed to act on time. Those people didn't care. They didn't wait. They, they were like that Texas mayor tried to get us like the other day. They didn't care for it with the government. They pulled themselves up by their boat straps and sailed out. The women who lost their children, all those missing children and those mothers and those women who did everything in their power to find those kids again. And those who, and I also, my, you know, I really hold in high esteem those who suffered from sexual violence or other forms of violence after the storm and now have to live with that additional trauma. Those people are people to me who are doing something that I really admire in this life is to to be able to carry that with you and to go on is very admirable to me. The people who suffered at the hands of racist white vigilantes, again, to be to have experienced such an event and then experience more horrific crime on top of it. Anyone who came out of that alive has done something that I don't think any one of us listening could say for sure we could do. And I also want to you know, not re- it's not really a celebration. I just want to acknowledge the survivors of this trauma who returned to New Orleans and who wouldn't give up. And then I do want to, I'm going to flip it around and acknowledge the survivors who refused to return, who said, I am never going back to the place where all of this happened to me. Because both of these people came away, both from the last two at least, came away from that horrible situation for them alive. And I think that is something that I can look to and admire amongst many other people who occupied, you know, different roles in the disaster. These are my heroes. So, okay, I've officially been a killjoy, got y'all caring about Kanye West and gave you a lecture. My apologies, but I really felt it necessary to really state where my values lie in regards to this particular discussion. So let us talk extremely briefly about rebuilding. We're almost towards the end. In How to Kill a City... Peter Moskowitz describes New Orleans as sort of the testing ground for gentrification across America. A successful test, ultimately, where capital controls the city and wealth has been concentrated in only a few hands. Most of the destroyed Black neighborhoods in New Orleans were never rebuilt to the level that they were before, and as we learned earlier in this episode, much of the disaster relief was paltry or basically stolen by the mayor, which we kind of know about. I wouldn't say he stole most of it, but he he did try to get his cut. And, you know, they went after Mayor Nagin, but I wonder if there were any other people, perhaps, who were not of African-American descent who were also robbing, who did not face jail time. The Superdome still stands. The French Quarter... The neighborhoods of New Orleans where the majority of the poor and Black lived were not, contrary to Mayor Nagin's comments, key to rebuilding the city of New Orleans. Despite any politician's rhetoric, Black New Orleanians were expendable, and the glee with which real estate speculation flourished in the aftermath of the storm and the ways rebuilding happened for everyone except those who suffered most 
tell a story not just of government failures or negligence, but the intentional framing of a natural disaster that cost approximately 1,800 lives as an investment opportunity. And I have given you the death toll here. And on that note, I do want to encourage you to take a look at my source notes for how the deaths were determined after Katrina. I have scientific questions about the methodology, which are beyond the scope of this episode, and also... um kind of just how I read scientific papers. But I do think what I can say for, you know, the passersby is when we're hearing an estimate, it is important to know how did they come by this estimate. And I am satisfied with their method that it provided exactly that, an estimate. When you eyeball the number of marbles in the jar to try to win a bet, that is kind of how I see it, except someone who's better at doing that than me, probably. Because <laughs> um, I'm horrible at that game. Always lose, still gamble. We may never know the exact number dead, though, but we can still, and I hope that I've done this throughout this episode and encouraged you to do so, because this is the real reason I even wanted to push through my personal discomfort to talk about this, is I want us to hold a place in our hearts and to have compassion for those who died and their families, as well as the Black and poor people of New Orleans who really suffered in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. I am almost done, but I gotta give my closing remarks because I'm a chatty Kathy today. When I started researching this, is it Chatty Patty? Why would she be Kathy? Anyways, when I started researching this, I did not expect to have approximately three hours over all the episodes of material to deliver. Hurricane Katrina, while a significant media event at the time, has virtually vanished from the public consciousness. Occasionally, PBS, CNN, or other networks trot out a 10 years after the storm, 19 years and a day after the storm special, which comes across as more of a content grab where they utilize the stories of survivors to generate ad revenue rather than change anything. But if y'all know the impact CNN has that I am unaware of, uh, please make me aware. I will still not be watching. In general, though, we're meant to watch these stories and say, wow, that's so sad. Oh, my God, I feel so bad. And then you turn off the television and you feel like that feeling bad did something. Well, not me, because I don't watch TV and I'm 11 years into my CNN boycott. And that is for another time. But uh, probably never. I'll never explain it. But I do want to talk about this. Well, there's an element of, well, what can we do? Every time I make people aware of any type of information that they don't really want to be aware of, they're like, well, what can I do? Because now you made me aware, so give me something to do. Recently, I've been hearing this term mutual aid a lot. And I like the idea because it gives people with time and money on their hands a way to support causes that they may have an interest in or cities and communities they want to invest in and build up, including basically your own city, right? So a quick Google search, I did this because I don't want to tell you, oh, give money to this and that people, but they scam in, okay? So a quick Google search of New Orleans mutual aid turned up many results, quite frankly. So if you're interested in putting money in the hands of the working people of New Orleans, at this current point in time, I do recommend looking into a mutual aid group. I have always had a positive experience giving to mutual aid groups where I feel like they are genuinely doing something that aligns with my values. I also want to discuss a critique I hear lobbied at anyone who dares to think, question, and recount history and how that may have an impact on the present. 
Okay, you presented a problem, but what about the solution? This is a tricky gotcha, and it stifles a lot of independent thought because now, simply for recognizing a problem, you've been tasked with solutions that Harvard and Yale-educated elected officials couldn't come up with after years of experience on the job of coming up with these solutions. And these people have teams of experts and resources at their disposal. Not to mention, coming up with solutions is their full-time job, and your full-time job is, I don't know, writer or something. I'm a writer, so... That's my full-time job. And I'm like, well, that's what I do. I don't know what else to do. So it's what I'm doing. So now you go back to not thinking about anything difficult or troubling, because if there's no solution that you can immediately implement by yourself as an individualistic Batman upon New Orleans, you think I'm going to close my eyes and ignore social problems. And you've been told that thinking, caring, or expressing empathy is worthless, but it's not worthless. It can be useless, aside from your own personal education and knowledge, but you can always take direct action in directly supporting the communities affected by any disaster, whether it's those suffering from the hardships of unemployment uh, during the past year or so, it's 2021 for the future annals, or natural disaster relief from hurricanes, snowstorms, etc. It's not an impossible idea to consider for many people I want you to remember there is always a way to get money into the hands of the community. What do you need nine times out of 10? It's money. And if you're one of those people listening and you're like, oh, not me, I don't need money. Um, I will give you my phone number if you contact me. No reason though. Ray Nagin's oft criticized remarks from the previous episode have been hurtling around my mind at warp speed lately, as well as the backlash he rece- received. Not counting federal prison, he did receive a little more backlash publicly for his chocolate city comments than he did for pilfering funds intended to rebuild this chocolate city and maybe i just forgot when he was lambasted in the news so if i'm wrong my bad i do want to talk about though the concept of a chocolate city and help people understand what this even means through the context of washington dc history which is Honestly, oddly fascinating. Didn't think it would be. Sounds lame. No offense to DC, but I kind of might have to take a break from US history for a while because I do like this is a global black history podcast and this is not like the biggest place on the globe. It just happens to be where I am. So please follow along because it's either going to be a chocolate city episode next or in a couple episodes and I will be doing an episode almost every week. I am still going through it, y'all, believe it or not. So next week, there may be no episode, but I'm going to try to pull myself together. And I want you to remember that if you can find baddies on Instagram, fine, face on fleek, body on point, you can find a good way to help communities and people you care about. And speaking of baddies that you can find on the internet, my Twitter is at BLKHistoryPod, And you can also help keep this podcast going by visiting my Patreon lived in the podcast description. Every dollar you spend on my Patreon will go directly to my new intravenous coffee consumption system. Elon Musk, you can't have this invention. I'm sorry to say. Find me on social media. Send me a little note. And have a good one. Have a great day. That's it for now. See ya.